We're in the book of Acts chapter 15. And the book of Acts is a narrative that's unique in that uh, it is the history of the early church after Jesus goes back to heaven. And we've been taking several, several weeks in this, uh, in this last year, 21, and also now in 22, just walking through chapter by chapter through this book of the Bible. It's powerful. It's moving. It's action. I like it. It's called acts. It means there's some action going on. It's not necessarily the action of the people, but it's the action of the Holy Spirit through the lives of yielded servants of the Lord. And it's the, it says in your Bible, the acts of the apostles, but probably better off to be, say, the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. And it kind of begins with Jesus going back to heaven. It ends with Apostle Paul in a jail cell in Rome, or actually in a rented home in Rome, uh, as he is awaiting trial before Caesar. So that's kind of how it is. And we come to chapter 15, and Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes up. In chapter 2, his spirit comes down. In chapter 3, the church begins to go out. There are lots of challenges that take place. There's wonderful things. The gospel now is being heard in the Judean region, but God was not satisfied with that. As a matter of fact, when he sent people uh, out, his last command should have been their first priority is not just to be witnesses in Jerusalem, but both simultaneously in, in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. He told them, I want you to be going out. This gospel is not meant for one location. It's meant for global distribution. Get the gospel to everybody. They didn't do that initially, and the Lord allowed persecution to begin to scatter them around. There was a need for some purifying and for some church discipline, as Ananias and Sapphira found out real quickly. You don't lie to the Holy Ghost. You're honest with that. And then there was problems because of people who disagreed with one another, and there were some deficiencies, and the church got together and figured out they could get more help to the pastoral staff if the deacons would uh, do some of the... Um, the day-to-day -day distribution and care for the widows and other matters of the church so that the men of God who are preaching the Word of God could give themselves to the ministry of prayer and the Word of God. And so God used that. And of course, then persecution came. The first martyr, Stephen, in chapter 7, chapter 8, the African man from Ethiopia gets saved and goes on his way rejoicing after getting baptized by uh, formerly or the deacon Philip. Then, of course, chapter 9, the nemesis of the local church, uh, Saul of Tarsus, is converted. Chapter 10, uh, Paul, uh, excuse me, Paul kind of falls off the pages of her Bible for a few chapters, and, and Peter steps up and has to learn that God uh, meant what he said back when he told Peter before he left, that he wants the whole world to hear about Jesus, not just the Jewish world. He wants uh, people like Cornelius, who was obviously a Gentile, and Peter had to go, and in course, chapter 12, he has to, that, uh, chapter 11 has to explain that to his other beloved uh, Jews who don't agree and don't appreciate it, and he has to tell them, this is what God's doing. This, we can't argue with the Lord. Our arms are too short to box with God. You'll find that in the Greek. I'm just joking. That's not true. But he says, no, we can't fight against God. God has made this decision. He wants the whole world to hear about Jesus. Chapter 13, the headquarters of the church seems to have shifted a little bit from the south where Jerusalem is, about 300 miles north, a little less than that, up to Antioch. And Antioch it became a place where Christians were first called Christians at Antioch. And they became very sensitive to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God took two of their pastoral staff, Paul and Barnabas, and told them, you need to make your way 
to the global world at large. The church supported them. They sent them out, no doubt purchased their first um, boat tickets as they went from Antioch down to Seleucia to get a ticket. And they went out to the island of Cyprus and went through the island preaching the gospel, made their way up into uh, Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, began going around and ministering there, suffered persecution, hardships. They even lost one of their helpers. John Mark had left them and decided he wasn't going to, to continue with them, and he went back. That became a matter of contention in chapter 15 as well. But after they finished, they made their way back on their missionary journeys. They made their way back to the church at Antioch, where they told them all that God was doing with them. I love that preposition, with, don't you? When you get baptized, you're identifying with Jesus. You're, when you join the church, you're identifying with Christ and the fellowship of believers. And when God uses you, you are labors together with God. Every once in a while we get excited. I want to do something great for God. I like to do something great with God. Don't you think that would be a better idea? And when they rehearsed with the people, they said, this is what God did with us. And we heard on Wednesday night, what a great message. If you miss Wednesday night's service, I would just suggest you go back to YouTube channel and, and listen to it again, Brother Jim Van Geldren. Uh, 100% God and what percent us? Zero. Yeah. Uh, letting God use us and not thinking it was nothing that we could do to get saved. And if we're going to be used of God, his work must be done his way. He is the vine. We are the branches. Without him, we can do. Don't substitute something in there, okay? And we'll think we can do something. We can't. We need him. And they understood that. They made their way back, and they rehearsed all that God had done uh, on this first large missionary journey. It covered a 1,400 miles. Uh, that would be probably distance from here to uh, probably Phoenix, Arizona, maybe a little bit shorter than that. But that's a long way, but that's uh, on foot and in boats and, and uh, probably some on maybe, uh, maybe uh, horses or, or donkeys or camels. I don't know, but there's a lot of travel there, 1,400 miles. Now we're about 13 years has gone by since Jesus has gone back to heaven. Most people believe that this was about A.D. 50, and Jesus had gone back at A.D. 30, 33 or so, and so there's been several years that uh, Jesus has gone back to heaven, maybe as many as uh, 17, 18 years that Jesus has gone back to heaven, and the church has experienced uh, great growth and uh, been led by the Holy Spirit of God to keep getting the gospel to another person. However, they are hit head-on with false doctrine. They have now received some brothers who probably were saved, but they just didn't like the idea that the Jewish traditions were not being honored and the law of Moses was not being there. And let's look at verse number 1. We'll see it right ahead. Open your Bibles and let's look and see what chapter 15, verse number 1 says. And certain men which came... Uh, down from Judea. So they were from Jerusalem and now have made the trip up about 275 miles or so up to Antioch and taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hmm. Let's look, we can please down, uh, if you would please, verse 5. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. 
So we have a group of people who have made their way through this church uh, and now had come to the church of Antioch and been teaching that you need, if you're saved, that's great, you believe in Christ, but you need to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses in the Jewish way if you're really saved. Okay? Now today we don't probably have that, but boy, many churches say, except ye be saved. Yeah, believe in God and baptized. You can't be saved. Or unless, you're, unless you don't do this, or you, you refrain from, from um, nicotine, and you refrain from, from uh, caffeine, or you don't do this, or you don't eat these, these particular foods, then you can't be saved. Well, there's a lot of, lot of mix-up here, and so it's really, it's the same tomb and the different singers. <laughs> but here they had got the uh, bad doctrine that salvation was not just by grace through faith, that you had to add something else to it. Oh yeah, you got to believe in God, but you got to you got to maintain good works, good or bad doctrine. Oh, you got to believe in God, but you need to be baptized, good or bad. Anything added to salvation, but faith in the grace and the provision of God is is a, is fallacy. It's wrong. Don't trust yourself for salvation. Don't trust a religious system. Don't trust the baptism waters. Only faith in Jesus. Well, they came and began in doctrine of that, but uh, they ran into a, ball, a buzzsaw called Paul and Barnabas. <laughs> and Paul and Barnabas heard that, and they quickly jumped on that. They quickly uh, said, you know, that's not, that's not true. That is not right. And they said, no, we are right. He said, no, you're not right. They had just come off a 1,400-mile mission trip where many Gentile believers got saved, and they were trying to shackle them and say, look, you need to go back and tell them that they're not just saved by grace. They need to keep the law of Moses, and they need to keep this and do this and do this and be circumcised. And Paul was saying, I, I don't think so. That's not going to happen. Barnabas equally spoke up, and the, the argument sent them back to the church at Jerusalem where there would be the apostles, the people who had heard truth from Jesus Christ himself, and the elders and the leaders that had surfaced there. Now, of course, some of them are already gone. James, John's brother, had already been killed by Herod. Looks like there probably had been some areas and years of a little bit more uh, less, uh, less persecution, a little more peace going on. And so the trip decided, you know what, if we need to talk about this, we're going to talk about it. Let's go down and talk to them. And they have, if you will, the Council of Jerusalem. They bring, they come down the 275 miles, and they make their way through. They come through the villages of Samaria and Phoenicia. And there they begin to minister to and confirm the souls of the Lord Jesus Christ, people who have already been saved in the years prior to this, in the previous 15 to 18 years there. They, they begin talking to them, and they tell them stories of mission, the mission trip, and how that people in Derby and Lystra, and people in Perga, and, and in the island of Cyprus and Paphos, they're getting saved, and they're not Jews, but they're receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ and following the Lord, and God is using them, and there's great things happening globally. And boy, when they heard that, they rejoiced greatly. Let's continue if we can, please. I'll follow along if you would, please. We see that, what I just now said in verse number 3. Notice that last line, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, verse 4, 
They received the church, they received the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all the things that God had done. What's the next preposition there? With them. Aren't you glad that you can be labors together with the Lord and what God can do with you when you and I are surrendered to him? But then, of course, the argument came up by some sects of the Pharisees, which had accepted the Lord, but they had some doctrinal issues. They felt like, and I, I don't know all the reasons. I think probably some of the reasons was just letting go of traditions they had known. There are some dear people that I believe have gotten saved, but they have a hard time leaving the traditions in the church of their fathers and mothers and grandparents. They have a hard time with that. They're saved as the Apostle Paul, but they're having a hard time dealing with the traditions and giving that away and the family pressures that come with that. How many think you know someone like that? Maybe. Sure. I think another thing is they, they felt like maybe the grace of God was just too easy for the Gentiles. The Gentiles needed to do something. They needed to put some skin in the game and maybe thought the grace of God was just too easy for them. And it shouldn't be that easy. I don't know. I think maybe something else that they may have had a hard time with is that they wanted just to control what God had given them initially in Jerusalem and can put some restraints and maintain control of the church, uh, the churches at large. I don't know. But this group, they rose up and said, hey, can I, well, I'm glad everybody's happy about the missionary report and everything, but let's talk about this. We need to put some restraints and we need these people need to, okay, I'm glad they're saved, but they need to practice the law of Moses. They need to go back and understand what Leviticus and Exodus is and all these things and, and practice these things. And of course, uh, that was the issue at hand. Wisdom of God, I think, is pretty great, is, is that the first speaker that spoke is Peter. Peter was the one of the inner circle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Peter, James, and John. James is already in heaven after being beheaded by Herod. John the Beloved, he is not mentioned here in this section, but he is one of the apostles, no doubt, that is still in Jerusalem, but one of the younger and would last the longest. He would be still writing the book of the Revelation in A.D. 95. But, but Peter stands up, and Peter, of course, he just a few years earlier was going out and winning uh, Cornelius to the Lord. He had the opportunity to go up with John to see in Samaria Gentiles who were accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. So he had firsthand experience. Let's look what he says real quickly. If you would, please learn, turn to verse, or verse number 6. And the apostles and the elders came together for to consider the matter. And there had been much, and, and when there had been much disputing, so lots of folks had some opinions and they shared it. Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago, Acts chapter 10, with Cornelius, God made a choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And uh, God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us. So he is not a respecter. He gave the Holy Ghost to the Gentiles as well as the Jew. And to put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by how? Faith, that's a good word to underline or circle if you're in the habit of doing that. Verse number 10, now therefore, why tempt ye God and put a yoke of the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? By the way, he's talking about the law. He said, why in the world after they get saved are we trying to put a yoke 
of the Old Testament law on them, which we couldn't bear, our dads couldn't bear. It didn't. And by the way, what does uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 say? The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. He said, you can't, you can't live with the schoolmaster uh, of law and try to keep it. It's to show you that you need Jesus. He said, what are we trying to do? Pull this and put this yoke on our new brothers and sisters all around the world just because they are not brought up as Jewish men and women like we are. Let's continue if we can, please. And of course, Peter is going to be confronted by Paul probably in Ephesians chapter, or Galatians chapter 2. You can see the, the, uh, the, the testimony of that later when he goes up to, to Antioch. But look, if you would please, in verse number 11. But we believe, would you read it with me? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... Isn't that wonderful? Believe faith in the grace of God. Right there, that's how people are saved. They're not saved by works. They're not saved by baptism. They're not saved by church membership. They're saved by grace through faith. Believing in the grace of God. He says that's how we believe it. Look, if you would please, verse number 12. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to two more speakers. So the first was Peter. Now Barnabas and Paul declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. When you see the miracles and wonders, of course, this is in the early church, and uh, they had been given gifts of prophecies, gifts of tongues, gifts of healing, and uh, gifts of knowledge. These are things that were very common because they didn't have the New Testament completed yet. It would be completed in the first century, but one of the things that God makes it very clear, when that miracles were done, they were done by a Jew and they were done for the Jews. And it was to magnify and to convince Jewish people that what was going on was truly of God. If you can keep that in mind, that'll help you. That'll help you. Tongues, it was a real thing, a real language. That, was, that would be a miracle that someone who did not study a language could speak a language. If I started speaking Japanese this morning, it would be a miracle, okay? Because I don't know Japanese. And when people began to speak in a tongue, in a language they did not know, it was not jibber-jabber, it, it was not that. It was, it was the Holy Spirit infusing them to speak in a language or be heard in a language. Sometimes it was more the miracle of hearing than speaking. But to be heard in a language that they did not know, that's a miracle. There were people who were healed. Uh, even the Apostle Paul was used of God. He was a Jew, and it was done primarily for the Jew. And because the Jews require a sign. And we see that. If you can keep that in your, in your little noodle there, that'll help you when you're reading the rest of the Bible. And then read that and compare that to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We must hasten. Let's look at verse 13. Can we please? And after they had held their peace... James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon Peter hath declared, and Simon and Peter, the same person, that God did the visit to the Gentiles, talking about the Cornelius event, no, no doubt, and taken out a, to, for him, for them, a people for his name. And James now, so we have, we have four speakers. We have, there's been an argument. Now Peter stands up, and he tells what happened in Acts chapter 10. Then Barnabas and Paul tell what God is doing in the miracle of the Gentile world through global missions. 
And then James. Now, James, this is not the James, the disciple of James. This is, this is James, the brother of Jesus. We find that, I think you'll see that in Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 10. They shared the same mother, Mary, but they had a different father. Joseph, obviously, was, was, uh, was the father of James. And they had other, other, other kids as well and his brethren. And he is also the author of the book of James. But it looks like to me when James went to heaven that uh, James the apostle or the disciple, that James, the brother of Jesus, became one of the main, if not the main pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And he is the one who speaks on behalf of the church, and he listens to it, and he says, look, I, I think God's got an answer here. He said, we should not put any more pressure on, on the Gentile believers than this. And they come up with four things, and three things generally, and four things individually. And you can see those in your scripture, and we'll turn there in just a moment. But he, through his leadership, says, look, here's what I think, based upon all we've seen, Here's what I believe the Spirit of God wants us to do. We'll just look and see that real quickly, and then I'll make a couple comments and we'll be dismissed this morning. Would you look, if you would please, at verse number 18. Known to God are all these works from the beginning of the world. And then verse 19, he's going to reference Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. You'll, he quotes that. Look at verse number 20. But that we write unto them, the Gentile believers, especially those up in Antioch, that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornications and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old hath time, hath in every city of them that preach him being read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men and their company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely, they sent Judas, one of the, the, the chosen prophets there, and then Barabbas, Barabbas is his, his, uh, his, his last name, and then Silas, chief men among the brethren. So they sent two representatives from the pastoral staff or from the, uh, the, the prophets that were there to go up to, to Antioch and deliver the letter. You can read the letter, we won't have time this morning, but you can read the letter that he wrote in verse number 23 through 29, he will read a letter that it will be circulated to them and read to the church at, uh, at uh, Antioch. And then we'll find the rest of the chapter. Uh, he, they will take it up there. The people will be rejoicing. They'll have consolation and encouragement because they, they couldn't understand why were they making them go to these things when they had such freedom in the grace of God. I want you to listen carefully because I want to share with you a couple thoughts I think that can apply to us today. At the end of the chapter, you'll see a little dissension between Paul and Barnabas, which we may discuss next week before going to chapter 16. However, once you notice these couple things, first of all, false teaching must be hit head on. Doctrine determines destiny. And we must be, be serious about truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Bad doctrine creates, creates hell-bound people eventually. When you try to blend things that are a little bit of truth, a little bit of error, you're going to have error. It has to be dealt with. Occasionally, I think if there's anything that a, that a, that a leader should, should get serious about is when bad doctrine is affecting others. And we see that here in this passage of Scripture. It needs to be dealt with. Number two, I want you to notice here that the testimonies of God's working brings great joy and encouragement to other people. One thing that I love about this, don't you love getting a testimony from videos and from, from missionary reports and things of that? You know what it does? It encourages us to continue in the things of God. 
By the way, you have a testimony. When God blesses you, tell someone else about it. When you, do, when you see someone, I had someone tell me this week, Pastor, I, I, uh, I'm sick and I got cancer and I had to go to this appointment, but in the process, God let me lead a lady to the Lord. And I knew you'd like to hear that, Pastor. I don't say it to brag. I'm just telling you, I'm so glad that God took a bad time in my life and let someone else get saved through. You know what that does? Encourages me. Testimonies encourage people. Number three, godly leadership is important in your life. Everybody needs godly leadership. Now, I'll tell you, not all leadership is godly all the time. If you want to find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up. You're not going to find one. Had a man the other day arguing with me about, oh, I just don't appreciate this and systemic problems and independent fundamental. And this pastor did this and this pastor that. I said, what did you expect? A perfect church? A perfect pastor? You're going to waste your life arguing and trying to fix systemic problems when you need to, need, to, need to be the Christian God wants you to be and follow the godly leadership in your life. If you can't find godly leadership in the church that you're attending, well, go to another church. <laughs> Let God lead you to that. Be very careful about it. But you know, godly leadership is important. Peter, aren't you glad he stood up and made some decisions? Aren't you glad that Paul and Barnabas stood up and said, let's take this to the church at, at Jerusalem? Aren't you glad they spoke and gave a testimony? Aren't you glad that James stood up and said, hey, and then whenever he spoke, all the elders and all the apostles and the whole church said, we're with pastor on that. James, that's, that, I think that's the spirit of God and we're going to go with that. And he wrote a letter and God used it. I don't think spiritual leadership are always what we ought to be, but I will tell you this, everybody needs it. You're not the exception. Boy, there's just no room for mavericks. God made us to be sheep, to follow along and to stay together and love each other and work through problems. Another thing I want you to notice in this passage of Scripture is that problems are in a church. Every church has problems. This is another problem. Acts chapter 6 is a problem. Acts chapter 5 is a problem. Many times you're going to find problems surface. And whenever you have people, you have problems. You have more people, you've got more problems. But God will work through the leadership of a local church. And then I want you to notice here, at the end of the day, and I'm taking a little bit longer. There's not as many buses to go out for just a second. Uh, I'll conclude momentarily. But at the end of the day, he said there's, there's three basic things that we, we do think that Gentiles should acknowledge. Number one, he said, don't eat food that is known to be offered to idols. And the reason is, is not to be an offense to a weaker brethren. In the time that they lived in, they would go to the meat market and you would have pristine, pristine cuts and things of that nature. And then you would have another pile over here that was discounted because it had laid out on an altar for a few hours and they just collected it and brought it back and they sold it cheaper. Some of us like cheaper meat. Some of you, you'll pay the top dollar, bless your little heart. But if people found out it was bought and, and worshipped to an idol, and, and meat is meat, idols are, are dumb idols. And Apostle Paul will deal with this in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. He'll say, look, it's not a, that big of a deal. But if you're going to offend another brother who used to worship idols, and that's a big deal to him, don't do it. Don't be an offense to another brother or sister. And then he talks about the blood. Don't eat things that are strangled and, and, and drink blood and eat blood. And I think it probably goes back to Leviticus chapter 17. This is only, uh, there may be better explanations. 
But in that passage of Scripture, you'll see that's where God says the, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And you also say the blood was for atonement without the shedding of, and the blood of Jesus was spilled on the cross. So the blood represents two things, life and atonement or salvation. That's important to God. Say, Pastor, why would you bring up abortion? Because life is important to God. Why would you bring up euthanasia? Because life is not anyone else's decision to take. It's sacred to God. And blood represents life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Number two, we find that, that it's without the shedding of blood that we have atonement or salvation. Very important to God. Salvation and life are two very sacred things. He said, for this sake, don't drink blood and eat, eat the blood and don't eat things strangled because the blood is an offense to God. So don't offend other people by eating idol meat that has been worshipped to idols, especially if it's sensitive to them and you know it. Number two, because you don't want to offend other people. Some of us say, I don't care. I just say what I want to say. You have got rooms for rent upstairs. No, you don't say everything you want to say. You ought to be careful not to be an offense to other people and use your liberty as a cloak of covetousness. And you also don't want to offend God. And that's what I think he's talking about. And then he says, abstain from fornication. You know what fornication and adultery is? It's a sin that offends you and your family. Every time someone is, 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 practices fornication or adultery, they sin against themselves. Every other sin is without the body, but the sin of immorality is a sin against you. You'll hurt yourself. You'll hurt your future. You'll hurt your brain. You'll hurt your life. You'll hurt your body, and you'll hurt your family. I think in those three things, say, look, if, if they can live this way, if they can not offend others by eating meat offered to idols, if they cannot offend God by drinking blood or things strangled, and if they cannot offend themselves and their precious family with fornication and Obviously, all these offend God when you offend someone else or you offend yourself and God's already given you a commandment. Because I think that that would be sufficient. And they signed the letter. And the people received it and said, I think we can do that. That makes sense to us. I'm glad that God gave us, almost 2,000 years later, a story in a church that had some problems and see that God uses his word, sound doctrine, godly leadership to come to a solution so that we're not offending to God, to others, or to ourselves.